Welcome to Hymn Talk. This is a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima. With me, as, as always, is my brother Alex. Alex, how we doing? Doing all right. Well, I work at Emmanuel Church as a pastoral assistant, and one of the, my main responsibilities is essentially the worship leader or the song leader, whatever you want to call it. It's not a biblical position, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but I lead the singing at Emmanuel Church, and I'm responsible for working with my elders in creating uh, or determining what songs we're going to sing each week. So it's an important question, Alex, for us to think, uh, what songs do we sing as a church? How do we decide what songs mm-hmm. do we sing? You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, how, how we decide to sing songs at our church. I mean, I, I think it's, it's legitimate to start with what your goals are and and then to work backwards with how you're going to decide on what songs you're going to sing in your church. So the goal is for all of God's people, young and old, male or female, regardless of personal interest in in music and things like that, you want all of God's people to be able to enter heartily into the corporate singing of songs of praise, worship, thanksgiving, lament, etc. You want all of God's people to be able to enter into the corporate worship of God, uh, to His praise and to His glory. Okay, that's the goal. Well, then you want to work backwards. How are we going to select songs then that achieve that goal? What songs will we sing? And so at Emmanuel, this is not at all original to us, this rubric I'm about to share in terms of what, what we've done at Emmanuel. This would match uh, up very well with what Isaac Watts was seeking to do, what his philosophy would have been. Uh, It would match up also with Martin Luther's philosophy of uh, corporate worship in the life of the church, corporate singing in the life of the church. Um, It would match up very well with what many of the Puritans thought should characterize the singing of churches. I recognize the application might be different, but in in this rubric, I think we're, we're very well in line with what generations of the church have done uh, in centuries past. There are three basic sort of leading lights for us or guiding lights for us in terms of thinking through songs for worship. We want all of our songs, first of all, to be theologically rich in terms of the content of the song. So we want to sing truth. Uh, we want to sing the truth of God's word. We want to sing it back to him. We want to express it ourselves. We want that content to be theologically rich, theologically specific, biblically informed. So theologically rich content. The second would be uh, singing songs that are congregationally oriented. And that's normally where most of the discussion happens uh, for us. Um, songs that are, are well suited for a congregation of untrained voices. Uh, so not necessarily vocalists, but people young and old, trained and untrained, musical and not, are able to enter into the singing. And then the third piece would be just singing songs that are musically edifying which is admittedly a moving target. I think there are songs that have been really uh, musically edifying. What I mean by that is emotionally stirring. The music fits the words that have maybe worked well in generations past, but now seem out of date. Mm. We might update the tunes Mm -hmm. or take tunes um, and modify them or something like that. But we want music that our people like, uh, music that that, that stirs the heart and the emotions as well and expresses the words of the song. Alex, you're a a lead pastor in a church. You're usually primarily responsible for preaching God's word, and you seem to have a lot of thoughts on the music. That's kind of peculiar. 
Uh, I think if we talk to most pastors and we ask them what songs they're singing that Sunday, they usually probably have no clue. Mm. That's the music guy's responsibility. Mm -hmm. So why is it that you care about this? Why do you think pastors need to be involved in singing in the life of the church? Well, first of all, I hope it wouldn't be true that most pastors wouldn't know the songs they're singing that Sunday. That'd be sad to me if that were the case. And I I guess that would certainly be true of many. Um, I I would say... um, uh, that that the the music ministry of the church, the song ministry of the church, mm. ought to be very much a matter of significance to the pastor. Your responsibility as a pastor is to shepherd the flock of God and to steward the teaching ministry of of the church, uh, to communicate truth to uh, the people. And one of the mediums uh, through which truth comes to us is through the songs that we sing. And so songs are an immensely important pedagogical tool in terms of the discipleship ministry of the church. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I first heard say this. I know I've heard Ling Duncan say this, that um, uh, most people will walk away from the church service not reciting the outline to your sermon, mm-hmm. but, but humming along or singing the verses of the songs that were sung. Yeah. Most people on their deathbeds are not going to have a manuscript of your sermon in their hands. They're going to have the text of a song. Yeah. And so in terms of the content that people in my church are getting, the truth content, one of the, the most significant avenues truth is coming to them is through the songs that are sung. And why I would not want to be integrally involved in the selection of those yeah. songs. I mean, I, I just I would be crazy not to, to want that to be a priority. Yeah, I think that some of the key texts we have in, in the New Testament at least that talk about congregational singing. You have in Ephesians and then Colossians 3. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Colossians 3 that, that talks about teaching one another. Yes. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which signals to me teaching is under the jurisdiction of the pastors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're responsible for, for leading and taking an eager interest in the teaching of the church. Yeah. So it, it's under their purview, yeah, what songs th- churches sing. And, and I think, another, I mean, in some, in some way, we're all teaching one another, and we're all teaching mm-hmm. one another in all sorts of different contexts. It's not like only pastors teach. But you're right. Um, I think there is, you're telling me in the, the liturgy of our church, the order of service in our church, I have an opportunity every week, literally, to put words in our people's mouths. Mm. I, I, I have a, an opportunity of input into the actual... Uh, uh, words that people are saying and singing and communicating. That seems like a significant opportunity. And, and so, so why we would want to seize that opportunity and make sure that good content is being sung and it's instructive and it's helpful and it's edifying, that seems to me to be an extremely important work of the pastor and, and one that he should do in cooperation with, with musical experts and people in the church who can help him if he himself is not a musical expert. And so I have very much appreciated the dynamic we've enjoyed working on, on songs together. You, from the standpoint of one who is giving far more attention to music theory, literally, than I am, and musical arrangement than I am, and AV concerns than I am, and me from the standpoint of one who has is spending more time practically mm-hmm. uh, uh, interacting with the spiritual needs of the people of the mm-hmm. church. And it's a wonderful marriage of those two things coming together, thinking, how can your expertise in music help serve the spiritual needs of the congregation and the worship priorities Mm -hmm. of of coming to God and Mm -hmm. singing to Him. So we're talking about three things that that kind of are guideposts or guardrails that help us determine what songs uh, we sing at the church. You mentioned songs that are theologically rich, Mm -hmm. songs that are congregational, Mm -hmm. 
and then songs that are musically excellent. I want to talk about that first one, Theologically Rich. I think it was Gordon Fee who said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology, hmm. which I think is just deeply instructive. Mm-hmm. It's one of those quotes you can think about for a long time and mm-hmm. pastors should pay some mind. Um, and, and, and we can say, if that statement's false, then, then what's the purpose of singing then? Yeah. If you can't derive theology from the songs, well then why are you singing the songs that you're singing? Mm. You know, so, mm-hmm. But I, I think that's, that's transparently true what Fee is saying there. Yeah. I think that's probably, that, that tenant there of songs that are theologically rich is probably where, if, if I'm diagnosing evangelical singing today, that's probably where most churches struggle. Uh-huh. Is there is a instinct to sing songs that just lack depth, hmm. that lack substance, substance both theological and scriptural. I mean, you, there's just not much out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we do to find songs that? Are, what are things we do, ways we find uh, songs that are theologically rich? Well, um, I, I think pretty simply, the sort of answer I give: it consult solid hymnals. I would consult lots of online resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ask other pastors what they're doing that works. I think there are a lot of reliable sources out there. Um, we make use of a variety of different hymnals. I grew up on the Trinity hymnal. The, there was a red one that was used in Presbyterian spheres, a blue one used in a lot of Baptist circles. Uh, there's been a more popular hymnal that's come out from MacArthur's Church, uh, Grace Community. It's called Hymns of Grace, excellent hymnal, excellent resource. Uh, we often draw songs from the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, wonderful ministry they have, and excellent songwriters, uh, Sovereign Grace Music, Matt Merker, Jordan Coughlin, uh, Matt Papa, Matt Boswell, uh, artists like that. We're in, a, a, I think, something of a golden age. Um, well, there's a, there, there, there were the evangelical movement saw the birth of uh, a lot of great hymns, I'm thinking, Isaac Watts, uh, the Wesleys, and, and, and others. Um, so I'd say the 1700s, 1800s, explosion of rich hymns, and then the 1900s, just a bad time for everybody. Mm-hmm. But we're getting back, I think. There's been some wonderful hymns written in the last mm-hmm. two or three decades, and I think we're going to see only more of that in, in the decades to come. So there's lots of resources out there. But I think you're right on this impulse. I, I don't think people always have something against truth or something. Mm-hmm. But there is this movement away from having doctrinally rich content in your songs. Yeah. Uh, maybe people think that makes the song sound more prosaic and mm. less poetic. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. I don't embrace that for a second. Mm. But also, too, I see a, a really disturbing trend to have songs that hover around very broad and unspecific categories, mm-hmm. that, that the, the content of which can be filled with whatever we're feeling mm-hmm. at that moment or whatever happened with us that mm-hmm. week. So I'm talking about general praise songs that might center around a vague idea of light and darkness. or You can feel singing. free to give an example. Well, I, I, I'm not going to give one specific example because I don't want to rain in anybody's parade exactly if there's a song <laughs> that's meant a lot to them. But a song where, you know, you, you are hope or you are the light and you, know, you broke into my darkness. And hmm. Well, there's wonderful ways in which God is light. There's wonderful ways in which God is the God of all hope. There's wonderful ways in which light is broken into darkness. But the songs themselves do not oftentimes attach any specific scriptural content mm-hmm. to the very broad category of light, hope, darkness, etc. And so all I'm saying is there's a tremendous opportunity lost there where people can be, everyone can be singing the same song, but meaning completely different things mm-hmm. 
by saying it, whereas in a song like in Christ Alone, almost always in every single line, the the uh, meaning of the words is unmistakable. Yes. So, so when you say, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every uh, sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live, there's very little elasticity to those words yes. in terms of the meaning. There's very little reading into those words you can do. It means something very specific. It means something of the most urgent and significant import for everybody in the, the room. Mm. And you sing it in harmony knowing we all have to mean this. If we're, if we're singing this with our minds, mm-hmm. we are singing this, we, we are singing the very same sentiments. There's no confusion about mm. what we're, we're singing here. Mm-hmm. And we're after songs that are more like that. Specific, theologically rich, songs uh, whose meanings cannot be mistaken. Yeah. And th- this can be, be hard because I, mean, I think many of us hear songs. We might have sang it in another church or at school or maybe even heard it on the radio. And we attach significance to it and it becomes something that we enjoy listening to. And Alex and I and other leaders in the church, we're, we're, uh, we have the happy privilege of having members constantly suggesting songs, mm-hmm. suggesting songs that they've sung in other places, and usually they're great recommendations. One thing that, that I do that I learned when I was leading music in college that, that I think is super helpful for song leaders is if you haven't heard the song yet and haven't heard whether it's a hymn or a praise song or something like that, read the lyrics first. Read the lyrics first. You mean before ever before hearing even, the tune. Before ever hearing the tune or yeah, ever hearing the music. Because then you'll realize if this is set, has any positive true statements in it. If the song is saying something worth saying. Mm. I think it was Al Mohler who said something in, in, a, in a different context. But, brother, I, I can't disagree with you because there's nothing to disagree with. Oh, yeah. And okay. a problem with a lot of the songs that, that are being written today, and many songs that I think are being sung in the church, is not necessarily that they say falsehoods. Mm-hmm. But they don't say anything, mm-hmm. or they don't say anything worth saying. There's no meat to what they're teaching. Yeah, or or anything really specific I can sink my teeth into. Yes. Yeah, I'm a similar idea, and so yeah, I agree with that very much. I, I would say too, once once you've read the text of the song, and you hear the tune, I think um, this gets into a different topic on musically edifying or congregationally oriented. Those other two. Um, uh, we could talk about that. Around. Let's talk about um, that second one. We, we talked about congregational, s- uh-huh, picking yeah. songs that are congregational. I, I can say personally, uh, as a as a song leader, this is where I spend most of my time thinking. Uh-huh, yeah, I is so. this song congregational? Personally, as uh, our church, you know, we we come from a, a we're sort of reformed. We take God's word pretty seriously. Uh, our people wouldn't let us <laughs> sing a song that wasn't theologically rich. I, I, it wouldn't get I think past that's them. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so where where you and I are probably spending most of our time thinking is is this a song that's singable? Is it is it congregational? Yes. Will it, will it work in in this congregation? And that to some degree is a moving target. Hmm. Some congregations are more skilled at singing than others. Hmm. And so the same song that might work. Uh, in, in one setting may not work in another setting. There are some songs that just particularly thrive with several hundred voices and that won't work with with 27 people there. And probably some that would, could work with 27 that would work with several hundred. So so that's a factor. I think I think it's a moving target. But um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, what I was going to say 
uh, a moment ago is that one way to judge whether or not a song is congregational is to sing it a cappella. Hmm. Where you're, okay, are, do we depend on the musical accompaniment to make this work? <laughs> and I heard of a pastor who would ask people, uh, well, I think it was Aaron Menikoff. Aaron Menikoff, who, the office test. Yeah, the <laughs> office test. I think he, he said to you that... that uh, if you can't sing it in my office in a way that makes any sort of sense, then we probably can't sing it in, in the congregation. <laughs> and I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, no offense to Chris Tomlin or the sort of artists you hear often on, on contemporary Christian radio. It's most of his songs don't fit congregationally. A lot of them do. Some of them do, I should say. But, but a lot of them don't. They're more built for uh, a trained vocalist or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I don't want to poo-poo those songs as spiritually unimaginative or unhelpful or unedifying, um, but, but maybe they're just better sung in the car uh, on the way to work or, or in some other setting. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's very important. And I have, I have my eye on especially those members of my church who I know don't have a musical background and who I know maybe don't even especially like to sing in any other context. Some people, you give them any song to sing, they'll want to get into it. But there's some in our congregation who definitely are not musical yeah. but in their orientation. And so I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to get Bob in the back singing? He doesn't have a great voice, mm. doesn't like the way he sounds. Mm. He's not a very musical person. But he needs to be singing out to God, and I want him to be included into mm. this. And I don't want to pick a song that's going to squeeze him out. Mm. I want to find songs that Bob can sing. Yeah. And, and so that's a huge priority. What are, what are some factors, I can think of several, but maybe you have some. What are some factors that... Um, contribute to whether a song is congregational or not? Well, the key signature would be one. Hmm. Uh, that is, is the song high, too high or too low? Hmm. I think that's where a lot of mistakes happen. People will try a song and they'll think, oh, that didn't work. And it was really like, well, no, if you just moved it down hmm. a half step or a whole step, it, it might have worked. So key signature is one. And that's one you and I go back and forth on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, because I'm in the. You're often on the stage. I'm often in the congregation. You're hearing the music from the singing from one vantage point, and you can pick up on certain things. I'm in the congregation, usually on the front row, so I have voices behind me, mm -hmm. and uh, I pick up different things as well. And so sometimes song needs to be lower, sometimes higher, mm -hmm. often lower. I, I would say generally, as I go to other churches, I'm mm -hmm. thinking if they would just bring this down. Mo look, most churches I go to, mm -hmm. usually the music is more performance oriented. Mm -hmm. The one who's leading is either more popular now, I feel like a woman, or it's going to be a young man with a higher voice. And I look out at the congregation, a lot of the congregation's not singing. This is normally, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying everywhere it's like mm -hmm. this. Either the congregation generally is not singing, or maybe the women are singing and a few men. Mm -hmm. But almost everywhere I go, the men are not singing. Mm -hmm. That is almost universally true, mm -hmm. that in congregations across America, most men are not engaging in the singing. That's anecdotal. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't prove that. But so usually I'm thinking, all right, where where, where are the brothers, and how can I draw them in on this and help them to sing? <coughs> and the key signature is a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, that's it's so important. And it's, and it's, and here's just a this is a practical thing. This is not a philosophical. This is not a theolo a biblical decision. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think it, it's normally ordinarily going to be better to have a man leading the singing. Okay is because if, if, if the man's leading the singing, he, the, the tune or the, the key is going to be usually in his register, and it could be m easier to draw out the men's voices in mm. the congregation. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing that dispositionally women typically are, are more drawn to sing. It's just... It's, yeah, I think that's 
probably generally true. Ge- general, generally, we we can we can see that to be true. And something you know, something Alex mentioned earlier about serving our brothers is, it's just one of those things that I know as just from my experience. I sang in church as a kid because my dad sang, mm-hmm. and my dad, our dad, has a terrible voice. He he's he's essentially tone deaf. But I learned to love Christ because my dad loved Christ, and that was shown in the way he sang to the mm-hmm, Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think of if we lose the men singing in our church, we'll lose the next generation. We'll lose sons looking up to their dad. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just want to you know, qualify that and say if, if the reverse were true, that, that men sang more and women sang less, I'd say the same thing yes. from the reverse vantage point. Yes. But I would also say, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily say women temperamentally or otherwise are more interested in singing than men. I think I it's a think, cultural thing. Well, well, no, well, yeah, that's true. But I would also say the men have been squeezed out. The men have been, hmm. literally, the, the key of the song has excluded them. Hmm. And men have been conditioned for, for many decades hmm. now that this, this is more for the women of the church. Hmm. First of all, the men are usually unable to reach the notes that are being sung. Hmm. Um, and, and, then, and then the songs that are being sung um, are, are not the sort of songs that are, are drawing brothers in. So I think men have felt excluded. And so that kind of part of the service, they're happy to just observe hmm. what's going on on stage and whether or not they're participants in it is not really, not really a, a, the most important. So, so that's, that's our context. Hmm. But I could easily imagine another culture in which, which maybe the reverse is true. Mm. Um, in either case, you want men and women both heartily entering in yeah. and um, finding ways to do that. I think it's one, of, it's one of the most glorious things we see in just regularly in the life of our church, especially when visitors come. They're usually not drawn to our style of worship, and they're usually not people who tend to participate in singing a ton. And, and they're usually people that come from another church. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that their church has subtly taught them how to not sing, mm-hmm. how to not sing in church, whether yeah, they're used and, to and, a performance, whether they're used to exactly songs right. being too high. Yeah. Uh, Everything a, has been signaled from the front. You are not an active participant in what's yes. going on right now. Yes. Yeah. But it's been just wonderful to see those people over time more and more participate in the worship of God. I, 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 I regularly hear people say, uh, something like you know, uh, I I never really participated in the singing before came came to this church. You know, our son never sang until he came to this church. Or, you know, my husband always kind of felt like he wasn't really included in it on that. Struggled to sing in church. He feels he can enter in here. That that's routine feedback we get. What are other congregational factors that uh, the, to a song being congregational? Well, I mentioned the key signature. I think the rhythm of the song. Mm-hmm. I, I think we try to pick songs that are very predictable in their layout. The tune is predictable. Mm-hmm. So you're not doing very unexpected things from a vocal standpoint or melodic standpoint. Um, so, so rhythm's a big part of it. I think there's ways you can organize the, the instrumentation that lends itself more to congregational singing. Mm. Um, again, predictable arrangements of songs. So predictable arrangements. This podcast is called Hymn Talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of hymns. We're not really talking about too many praise songs or, or other other things. What, what do you think hymn, hymns as a genre are so geared towards congregational singing? Well, I think that's the strength of hymns. Yeah. Uh, generally, they are. That that is part of the theory. Do we sing exclusively hymns? No, no, no. Well, uh, no. Do we sing mostly hymns? I'd say mostly hymns. Mm. Yeah, we sing from the Psalter. We sing hymns. We sing modern praise songs to some degree. 
and something between a hymn and a praise song. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm struggling reaching for a good example right now, but I'd say more hymns than not. And, um, uh, but we're not an exclusive hymnody church. No, no, I wouldn't say that. But we just tend to go to hymns more than anything else. Hymns, ancient and modern. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, But yeah, I think hymns are time-tested. They're proven. They work. I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, there is no question that hymns are easier to sing. And I contend you can see that in conference settings or things like that. You might sing, I see this so often, you might sing three or four praise songs or something. Uh, Hillsong is a mixed bag, but let's say the three or four worst Hillsong songs. Mm-hmm. You're singing songs like that, and and you can hardly hear people around you singing not necessarily because the music's too loud, they're just really actually not singing. And then the band decides they're going to do a throwback to an old hymn, like It Is Well or Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And all of a sudden, yeah. the assembly erupts in singing. Yeah. Well, why is that? Well, it's because hymns just generally lend themselves better to congregational singing. Mm-hmm. That's not a prejudiced statement. It's just a pragmatic statement mm-hmm. that, that hymns... And look... Handel's Messiah is one of the most glorious music in the world. A lot of it's not congregational. Only the choruses are meant to be congregational. Mm-hmm. So there is great and glorious music that's not hymnic or mm-hmm. congregationally oriented. But I'm just saying if the goal is to get the whole congregation singing, you can't mm-hmm. do better than a lot of the old hymns, which are designed to draw a congregation of untrained voices into the singing of uh, worship to God. So we'll consider that last tenant, uh, but before we do, what, one thing Alex reminded me of, just another another thing that will help your congrega- congregational singing is the volume of the music. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that cuts both ways. I think if, you're, if your volume's you know, way too loud, where the, per- the person next to you, or you can't hear the person singing next to you, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be discouraged. Mm-hmm. That's typically, I find, is going to discourage people from singing. And it's going to signal to them I'm supposed to listen right now. Mm. I'm not supposed to listen to what what you could call a performance. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin, if it's too quiet, that can just be awkward too. And people are hearing maybe too much of each other, or or it's just it's it's if the you know song leader is singing too quietly to the microphone, they think, oh, I'm supposed to like whisper now. So you got to yeah. think about practical oh, things yeah. like this. We want this to be a, a practical talk with some you know just practical things you can. Uh, think about to help your help your singing. Yes, um, I think something Bob Coughlin teaches in Worship Matters that that I just think about really every Lord's Day. And it's something I tell my AV volunteers too. Is our job is to remove distraction. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. God will be worshipped today. If we're not crying out, the the stones and the trees are crying out to God in mm-hmm. worship. We just have to remove distraction. We need to get out of the way. I think preachers need to do this when they mm. present Christ in worship. Oh, sure. It's it's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that glory is changing people. Well, the same thing's happening in our songs. So me as a song leader, whether it's my guitar playing, my piano playing, my voice, all of these things, I want to remove distraction from God's glory and the words that we're singing to Him. Yes. So anything Amen. we can be doing to do doing to do that is is just is that's the goal. That's the task. Amen. Musically excellent. This is our most subjective, you know, tenet. But how would you describe that? What what are we looking out for? Yeah. So congregationally rich. Excuse me. Theologically rich. Congregationally oriented and, and musically edifying. Yeah, it is a moving target. You're trying to pick tunes that will help people enter into the singing. That will help people. Um, frankly, mean the words they're singing more. 
you could sing the same song to two different tunes, and in, in, in one sense the tune itself is distracting, you feel it's even inappropriate or something like that. And, uh, uh, but a, a good tune can really assist in singing uh, a song well. And so um, I think in, some, in, in, in this third um, kind, of, kind of pillar, you're kind of exegeting your culture a little bit, your particular context a little bit. What are the tunes that people seem to favor, that they seem to like? Are they, are they reverent? Are they evocative? Are they, yeah, are they edifying? And so I would encourage at this point pastors and song leaders to be very receptive to input from the congregation. Um, someone may come to me and say, hey, I would really love to sing this song. And, and I, as a pastor, may look at the text of the song and say, this is just not theologically rich. And look, I have a responsibility to guard the fidelity to the truth, you know. And so I say, look, brother or sister, great, but, but no, we're not going to sing that. But if someone says, look, I'm just really helped by this particular rendition of this theologically rich and congregational mm-hmm, song. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to be open to that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if we sing a song that maybe I think is great, but the whole congregation is like, that just, that was a stinker. Mm. Yeah, appreciate the words, they were great, but man, that tune was so just lame and we couldn't enter into, I, I want to hear that. And if there's a tune I sense the congregation really loves singing, but, you know, we might use it more. And, and, yeah, and th- this is a huge trial and error thing for, for me and Alex. I, I can remember, I think early on, there was a hymn, God My King. Mm-hmm. Thy might confessing, ever will I bless thy name. Uh, just a fantastic hymn, and probably could be done well in some churches, but our people just didn't take well to it. Yeah. It was, it's designed for congregations. The tune's easy to follow, and the words are just wonderful, just glorious. But the people didn't take to it. People didn't like singing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to act like that's unimportant. Oh, yeah. We want we want songs that are, are singable, but songs that are, that draw our people's hearts towards the Lord. Mm-hmm. So we, we found, we found um, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll introduce a song and people just don't take well to it. And that doesn't categorically mean we can never do the song again, but it's just something we're sensitive to. Well, and this is just true of a lot of, of, of older songs. They, they did not become popular until they, uh, you know, were assigned to the best tune or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Amazing Grace is a great example of that. It was a long time before that song became popular. It's, I feel like, the most popular hymn in the world now. Mm. Um, there is A Fountain Filled with Blood by, I think, William Cooper. Mm. Uh, similar story. And then a more recent song, like, He Will Hold Me Fast, uh, the music written by Matt Merker. Um, wonderful text. The words were written a long time ago and was just was just searching breathlessly for the right tune to give it life and to give it wing and to give it expression on the congregation. Is that and, He Will Hold Me Fast or Whatever My God ordains this? Oh, right? both. Oh, he, okay. he Will Hold Me Fast. He, uh, oh. Matt Berker didn't write the lyrics to He Will yeah. Hold Me Fast. God bless Matt. Yeah, he just wrote the tune to that song and and which which made that song in many ways what it is today. And then Whatever My God is another great example. I, I don't personally like the old tune of that song. Uh, he ascribed a newer tune to that that I feel is, is, is just wonderful. And so, yeah, I think we ought to give thought. And look, a, t- a tune can fall out of fashion within a generation or two, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So if there's a tune you held on to that maybe was so important to you, and but it just does not seem to, to connect with generations today, be open to say, oh, yeah, I can, I can sing this to another tune. Um, and so I, there's where I think you're going to find the most flexibility mm-hmm. in, in, in mm-hmm. this rubric. Not going to be flexible on the truth. And we super flexible on, on singing more performance-oriented songs, 
but in terms of what actually fits in terms of tunes that people like, there's a lot of room for flexibility there. Well, friends, we're out of time. Alex, thank you for your time. Happy to be here.